Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial on a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GABFEST. And by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new, delicious recipes, complete with step-by-step instructions that are designed to take around 30 minutes to prepare. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter SPG when you subscribe. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 14th, 2016, the Count Me Out edition of the Gab Fest. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in the D.C. studio. And then somewhere uh, in the either, the woman who put the Baz back in Bazelon, Emily Bazelon, is uh, of the New York Times Magazine. Where are you, Emily? I'm in New Jersey. I'm in I'm at Princeton at a very lovely guest house that my hosts have kindly put me up in. I'm visiting okay. the Law and Public Affairs program at Princeton. All right. She's uh, the pride of Princeton College. Uh, nice. Hamilton reference down. <laughs> Check that off the list. Now all we need is a New Yorker reference and... Then uh, This American Life. And This American Life. And, and we can go home. It'll be like a three-minute show. Okay. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, who is going to win the New York primary? How much does it matter? Then Paul Ryan's double secret no backsies vow that he will not be the Republican nominee for president. Then North Carolina, that genteel state, is facing the consequence of an extremely stupid and discriminatory new law it passed about many stupid things. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to give you a treat. There's a fantastic political advertisement from about 50 years ago that John discovered and has talked about on Whistle Stop, and we're going to play it. It's one of the, I, I, I listened to it through John, it's one of the most gripping advertisements I've ever heard, and uh, we're going to play it in full. It's a, it's really, really fun. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Hey, quickly, pay attention, listeners. We have three awesome announcements right now. Number one, Our Atlanta live show is coming up April 27th, Wednesday, 7.30 at the First Center for the Arts. It's it's our first show in Georgia. It's going to be great. It's obviously coming at a very hot time in the campaign. It's going to be really fun. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. Then we have a Washington, D.C. show we just are ready to announce on July 13th at 7 p.m. We're doing a show at the Warner Theater in downtown Washington. Tickets also at slate.com slash live. It's going to be right in the 
moment there'll be just blind fury and rage and and uh, all sorts of drama in that month of July, and it'll be fun to do a show in D.C. then. So join us July 13th for show. And one more quick announcement. We need a new intern, our great intern, L intern slash researcher, I would say. It's really a researcher job. Elle got an amazing uh, fellowship, and so she has to head off um, to her future, and we need you. So send us a resume and cover letter to gabvest at slate.com by email. It's a paid position. It's DC-based. It is part-time. It's really fun. It opens doors for your future. Uh, gabvest at slate.com with a resume and cover letter. The New York primary is on Tuesday, current polls pip Donald Trump with a strong lead, Hillary Clinton with a weaker one. A week after New York come Pennsylvania and various other uh, eastern states, northeastern states, Yankee states, uh, which are pr presumably Trump-leaning. The question at hand seems to be whether Donald Trump can win toweringly in these states and then sort of carry that run through to California and the June 7th states, and thus overcome his huge and growing problems with delegate commitments, which make it seem unlikely that he could he could win the nomination anywhere except on the first ballot. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders is trailing in New York, as he did in Michigan, but his um, and his realistic chance to contest a convention probably depends on having a New York win and maybe then wins in these other eastern states next week. But even if Sanders doesn't win, he is turning out huge crowds and seems to be having a wonderful time on the trail. John, let's start with the Democrats. What do the polls tell us about Bernie Sanders' position in New York? I mean, he is having these big rallies all over the state. He had one right outside my office in Greenpoint the other day. Uh, do the polls suggest that he is he is pulling even with Hillary Clinton, whose home state this is? I don't think he's pulling even. I think he's, pull he's shrinking the lead, her lead, sorry. Um, the last one I saw, I can't, I've, I've seen so many, had it, had it at about 10. I think it might be cl maybe closer, a little closer than that. But, um, but right now he's still not within close enough distance. But also more, the bigger thing to keep there. I mean, if he won New York, it would be huge, even if he won New York by like a, one vote. But he needs to win by big margins to get the delegates. He needs to close the pledge delegate gap with her. So, um, as a as a uh, momentum proposition, which is the the you know it's either momentum or math, and he's doing very well on the momentum front. He needs more help on the math but front. Don't you think, Emily, that if he wins New York even by one vote, but not by the what is it fifty six or fifty seven percent that people say he really needs to get right? Yeah, Doesn't need at least yeah. that much. That that it becomes a radically different race if he if he wins on her home ground, a place where she's devoted tons of of time and energy in a state which has a large minority population um, that that even if it even if the math hasn't changed for him it is there's her her situation as a candidate is going to be perceived as radically different i think that has to be right even though if we were going purely by the rationality of the math it wouldn't matter that much it seems like psychologically it will matter a great deal and that does matter for the math of the superdelegates i know they're pledged to her and but suddenly those relationships are going to seem more in play. And, you know, with both of these races, 
we're having this moment where it feels like the vote count should be maybe different than it is, or the kind of confusion between the delegates, the superdelegates, the caucuses, Trump's accusation that, you know, the whole Republican Party system is rigged. I know he's talking about the Republicans, but there's something compelling about that rhetoric from him. And if Bernie really wins New York, I think people are going to be wondering why we have all these superdelegates who are weighing in so heavily and in a way that would seem to be not taking into account the voters' preferences. Though I Wait, but the superdelegates, the only way Bernie's going to win is if he uses superdelegates. Right, but then he could, wouldn't the, can't the superdelegates come over to him on the grounds that, right. yeah. Right, but then, but that, if you're making a fairness claim, if you're making, I mean, Hillary Clinton still will have had more actual voters voting for her, and she will have undoubtedly won more pledge delegates than he will, unless something radically, radically changes. And he wins by gargantuan margins in the following, in the future state. Right, I guess. So he will still have a deficit on pledge delegates who are determined by the actual people voting. And then what he will then need is go to the superdelegates and say, hey, I've won, you know, 10 of the last 14 contests, and I've got all this this enthusiasm, and so you should break your pledge to Hillary Clinton and come to me, even though she's gotten more votes and will likely have gotten more pledge delegates. So he will be making the anti-democratic. anti-democratic case. Well, there's just a weird thing where we don't account, we do not have this variable of time, where the fact that her campaign seems to be flagging and his is improving all the time, there's no way to account for that in in the map. Right, we don't well, give super delegates for account momentum. For no, the superdelegates account for it. I mean, that's why that's one of the reasons they're in the in the mix. By the way, the real clear uh, politics average on New York is at uh, is at 13 points with Clinton's up by 13 points. Um, so maybe... But the, that's the that's the benefit of the superdelegates is that basically they are there to uh, account for the variability of time and and momentum. And this is the case that Ted Kennedy tried to make in 1980. Carter had the delegates. It was done, locked up. He'd had the number. It was over. And Kennedy said, I'm going to still contest. Like, I don't care that you've got the number. And he went to the convention and he tried to make the case that Carter's early victories were an artificial result of the fact that people rallied around him after the hostages were taken and then rallied around him after the Soviets moved into Afghanistan. And that once that dissipated and he started to lose that that was a more that better reflection of where the true Democratic Party was and a better reflection of where Carter would be in the general election. And he's right. Reagan. Actually, retrospectively, he was probably right. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, Kennedy was a, pre, a pre, pretty bad candidate. And B, the question is whether the country was really ready for a huge liberal message or whether there was a decline, whether the Reagan Democrats would have gone to Kennedy or stayed with Reagan. I mean, it's a really interesting uh, conversation we can have someday at, at length. But that's essentially what Kennedy tried to argue at the convention. He didn't make the sale. But I actually asked Sanders that that last weekend, which is, what if you just decide to contest even if you don't have the delegates and make the case, David, you're talking about, which is the one about the variability of time? He didn't really answer, but I think it's still an interesting question. Do you think there's any chance, John, that he wins New York? Uh, no. I mean, I, I don't know. Reading the people who know about polls and know about what happened in Michigan and why it might not happen anywhere else, I think it would be difficult for him to win 
in New York, but who knows? We got we still got four days of uh, you know rock'em sock'em. There's another debate coming up, so that could you know slosh things around. Hey, can I correct a mistake I made last week? I said that Bernie had greater support among less educated voters, which I just meant to be a neutral fact, not an insult in any way. But and that was true early on, like back in the Iowa New Hampshire days. It doesn't seem like it's true anymore. So I was wrong about that to everybody who wrote to me. We looked. All right, last question about Sanders Clinton. There's been a lot of talk this week about, well, what is this, what is Sanders' post-campaign strategy? He's clearly going to campaign through the convention. I mean, some of Sanders' people come over to Hillary, and they have said that from the beginning. I, I guess I'm asking a different are... question, not about how they're going to vote in in the election. It's like, does Sanders, as a political movement, become a an enduring entity? Is there something that he can do with his movement? The way Move On kind of did post-Dean. I think it's a movable feast as it always has been. Uh, McCarthy, McGovern, Dean, uh, Brown, it always, there's a candidate that it finds, rallies around for all of the same reasons. Reaffirmation of of a corrupted process, leeching big money out of the process, giving a voice to the people, all of those things, rebalancing uh, both social justice and the economic inequalities, all that stuff still exists, much like they said about the Dean campaign, which is that it was a movement and Dean kind of wrote it, which is different than what Obama was. Obama was Obama, and then all these people rallied in behind him. I think this is more like Dean, which is that the people and the mo- and the ideas and the power of the the power of the Sanders campaign reminds me of the power of the Dean campaign, which is a series of people or lots of people around a set of ideas, and they liked, you know, Elizabeth Warren, and now they like uh, Bernie Sanders. They will continue on around those ideas and that frustration more than it falling away because he he goes away. Let's turn to the Republicans now. This is Donald Trump's home state. He is also leading the polls in New York by quite a lot. Weird. The thing, the question I have: Why is John Kasich doing so poorly in New York? Why isn't John Kasich winning this state? And why? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it was kind of true of Wisconsin, too. You know, it was a Midwestern state. He should have done better there, even if the electorate was more like Iowa than it is like New York in Wisconsin. He still should have done better there. Uh, I don't know. Really. He's a goofball. I mean, yeah, but that's all right. I mean, <laughs> well, apparently not, that, not. I mean, something's not no, all right. I mean, people are showing. But, but I mean, he gets, you know, lots and lots of people coming to his rallies. People don't. I mean, I think the diehards want somebody who's more diehard than he is. I don't think I don't think people are thinking, oh, he's kind of goofy. I mean, he's, you know, a, a two-term governor of a big swing state. He was chairman of the budget committee. I mean, he has a resume that people, I mean, he's not just some like total flake. He's got accomplishments in life. So I think it's probably more that the kinds of people who participate in primaries want a kind of stronger cup of tea than he is. There was a Interesting set of stories and tweets about a member of the Republican National Committee, and I actually don't even know who it is, said that he didn't think that Trump needed 1,237 delegates, that probably 1,100 was enough going to the convention, basically to, to be an effective majority, that enough people would then feel kind of obliged to go with Trump, that that would probably assure Trump the nomination. So that's one poll of discussion. Another poll of discussion is actually, even if Trump has 1236, Cruz is doing such a good job at delegate manipulation, delegate positioning, that there's no chance that even at 1236 that Trump is a nominee, that he, he'll he be out. He'll be done if he doesn't come in with 1237. 
is there which which side of that case are you on, John? I, I, I mean, Trump is obviously losing altitude in this kind of second stage of the delegate fight. He's getting outmaneuvered by um, Cruz, which says which not only hurts him in the math, but also hurts him in the public narrative. His the conceit of his candidacy is that he'll be able to come into the presidency, which he knows very little about, quickly understand the landscape, the rules, and the challenges, and then perform at a higher level than anybody who's ever occupied the office before other than Lincoln. Um, here he's being faced with he said, Did he say he'd be better than anybody well, but Lincoln? Well, I, I think he said that Lincoln is hard to match, but he certainly said that he'll perform better than any you know modern president. If you look at what he's done with just the getting of the votes for a person who's a novice and who everybody said would be a disaster and would flame out 52 different times, he's been an extraordinary politician in the first stage. In the second stage, he's been bested by Cruz. And, you know, there shows a lack of preparation, a lack of um, adaptation, a lot of other mistakes. But so he's sort of done the one part well and the other part more mediocrely. But I think when you get to the, let's say we get to Cleveland, he doesn't have the 1237. His argument is incredibly simple. It sort of is like the larger Trump campaign, which is, yeah, okay, these are the party rules. Fine. Like, those are the rules. But here's the deal. I've gotten more votes and more delegates. That's just, like, appeals to people's basic sense of fairness. And in the same way that his entire campaign has been, hey, your Republican leaders have all these fancy explanations for why they haven't done things. But here, I'm going to tell it to you straight. And people like the idea of the simple truth at the heart of what he's saying, regardless of whether it's implausible or not. And as I mentioned last week, even in Wisconsin, the state he lost, exit polls showed that six in 10 people thought the person with the plurality of the delegates going into the convention should get the nomination. And that that is his strongest case so that even if he doesn't get on the first ballot, he'll be he'll be able to say I, I, it's been stolen from me. And I think there will be a lot of people who will who will believe him. Huh. That's interesting. So you so you feel something that eleven hundred, maybe eleven hundred delegates is enough. I guess what I would say is y- yes. And also, I just don't. I think the pure math of it is um, he has he he has a, a an argument he can make and he he's shown an ability to kind of overtake the party through the strength of his argument. So I wouldn't count him out. Is the fact that he's being outmaneuvered is that something that is an argument for him or against him? I think. Well, my own feeling listening to him is it's pretty compelling because it seems like, as John was saying, he's trying to make this about democracy and majorities and this simple idea that that's how we vote. The scenario that Ted Cruz is going around whispering in the ear of all these delegates and they're going to switch at the last minute, it seems like, you know, people smoking cigars in back rooms in this way that maybe wasn't such a bad way to choose a candidate, but doesn't look right in this day and age. And when you have all these people who are, you know, devoted to Trump, have come into the party to vote for him or just see him as their standard bearer, and you have him being so willing to challenge the Republican Party and, you know, create whatever ruckus and war he has to to win, I think that's going to just be tough for people to, um, there, there isn't a really good line that comes back at him. I think that's the problem. So then you have to have the, what do you mean there isn't a good well, what line? Do you, I, I mean, know. this is what John was saying. It's, you say, well, these are the rules. Sorry. We've just switched around everything on the second and third ballot because we're allowed to do that. And we just don't like this guy. It, I just, I, it's hard for me to imagine what Ted Cruz is going to say. That's going to be as compelling as Trump's version of events. And so then the party will just have to decide to kind of live with that um, tension. And that just seems to me to be perhaps, I don't know, they'll, they'll have a really interesting choice about which is worse. 
I mean, the problem for the if people had the view that the delegates were exercising their own free will in choosing somebody other than Donald Trump, that might help with the anti-Trump case. But the problem is the anti-Trump case that now has been made in order to kind of build the steam to try and slow uh, Trump down makes whatever the delegates do that doesn't that actually does stop Trump makes them look merely as like agents of the quote-unquote establishment. Who goes first in conventions? The Republicans go first on the 18th, I think. Of? July. 18th of July? Yeah. And then the Democrats are the next week, the 25th. Oh, they're pre-Olympics. Wow, they're early. The, on the Republican side, so they'd have time to run in the general and get their business cleaned up. If, if we go into the convention, this will be the last question here. It's just, this is, every week I'd like to get some convention logistics question in here. If we go into the convention and neither candidate has enough delegates for a majority, a clear, uh, in the, on the Republican side, will Trump and Cruz come with a running mate attached to them? They don't have to. This was, a, this was an issue in 1976. Reagan, to try and break off some delegates from Pennsylvania, um, named Richard Schweiker as his running mate. And it was a huge disaster. Schweiker was a kind of a moderate. And all the conservatives said, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're like picking this total squish as your running mate. And he got none of the Pennsylvania delegates as a result. And it was a huge problem. So they then tried to force Ford to pick his running mate as a way of knocking off some delegates from Ford. Ford said, screw you, I'm not going to do it. They had a rules fight over whether they could have a rule to force the, the Ford to pick the vice presidential candidate, and they lost that rules fight over 16C was the number of the rule. So the point of it is, no, they don't have to name, but it's a strategic point where you can use it to try to buy off delegates. So if on the second ballot, Cruz were to say, Rubio is my running mate, some people might think, oh, okay, well, that balances out the ticket. My, my worries about him being excessively conservative are overblown, even though Rubio is no great moderate. So you could do that or, you know, Trump could do the same thing. But the way the convention works, the, the president, presidential candidate is nominated and then the... He, exactly. He's nominated, then he makes his choice, then he gives his speech. And um, But the nomination for the president is not based on who his running mate is, or do, he doesn't have to name it before he's voted in. I think that's right. <laughs> and, and just to... Uh, preview it we have new york on tuesday and then the week after are again pennsylvania delaware rhode island maryland and uh, so, connecticut which will be also you. very yes my Trump state friendly. the afterthought right the 26th is uh, those four five those five and now let's hear from our first sponsor this week which is stamps.com when you run a small business the old adage time is money can be painfully relevant you're stuck at your desk and you don't have time to take an hour to go run errands let Stamps.com lighten your load and give you back some of that time you've been missing. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. No more time-consuming trips to the post office. Just use your own computer and printer to get the right postage for any letter or package. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage at a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. Paul Ryan, everyone's favorite conservative heartthrob, or at least my <laughs> favorite conservative heartthrob, disavowed any intention of running for president this week we have too much work to do in the House to allow this speculation to swirl or 
to have my motivations questioned. So let me be clear. I do not want, nor will I accept the nomination for our party. That audio was courtesy of NPR. Paul Ryan, he refuses to be dragooned into running for president, into saying he's going to run for president. He will not even watch reruns of The West Wing. He insisted that only someone, or he didn't insist, but he said that only someone who ran for president should be nominated. Does he mean it? I think he means it because it's so not in his interest to run for president this time around. It only brings him down, pulls him into this internecine battle. Who needs it? It's gonna, it would be so hard uh, to come President, in. being president, you get to be president. Well, only if you win, though. I mean, so you come in in the middle of the summer, you have no organization, nobody supported you in the primaries. A lot of people are really pissed off that their guy is not you. And then you have to go up against this fairly formidable democratic organization that, you know, presumably Clinton, but possibly Bernie Sanders has spent months, in Clinton's case, years, putting together who needs this it just seems like a thankless task and he'd be much better off just waiting four years and then running from the beginning on his own terms he he did this dance of the seven veils around the house speakership in 2015 and ultimately after insisting and insisting and insisting that he did not want to be the house speaker would not be the house speaker he lo and behold became the house speaker now people who are smarter than i am such as john dickerson probably can explain why that's different. Why is that different, John? Uh, Well, I think it's similar in this sense, which is that what he said about the speakership represented a true feeling of his, which was he didn't want to campaign for it. He didn't want to have to kowtow to the conservative grassroots folks who were handing out questionnaires saying, you know, fill out this 68 questions and we'll get back to you about whether you pass our purity test. Because A, that's just annoying. And B, that that's not, uh, that if you are beholden to them in going into the job, you the, the job you have is not a real job. It's kind of become a vessel for the minority of the Republican conference. When that all changed or largely changed, when the people who had forced Boehner out gave up on their demands for Ryan, And it was kind of presented to him in a kind of with a bow around it, largely with a bow around it. He was much more receptive. That would still be, despite what he said, that would still be the case on the presidency. So let's say we go to Cleveland and it's the 15th ballot and the place is smoldering because of the fights and the and the rancor. If some if it became the cake, if he became the consensus rescue candidate, he would do it. Like, of course, he would do it. But that the only way, the only way that he, A, could take it and the only way that condition could prevail is if he made uh, a statement and said, I don't want it. I'm not doing it. It ain't going to happen, which isn't to say that in so doing, having said that statement, that he is trying to prepare the way for that ultimate um, eventuality. I don't I don't think he is, but I'm just trying to allow for the fact, based on people I've talked to who know him and have talked to him, that... Um, I mean, that he would that he ha- isn't saying no way, no how, never. I mean, he would like to be president. He believes in the ideas that he believes in. He thinks that there are are of vital importance. They need to be enacted this moment. And one of the reasons he did this is because his big goal in life is to try to 
get things done and use the presidential, not the presidential campaign so much, although he would like to, but because of who the nominees are likely to be, it might be impossible for him, but to use the moment of the campaign to try to sell ideas. He believes, whether he's right or wrong, that you you can only enact the things he wants to enact, which is comprehensive tax reform and replacing uh, the Affordable Care Act, if you make the sale during the campaign, that you have to make the sale during the campaign or else you don't build up the support for the ideas to then try to enact them. I mean, that's he totally believes that. Donald Trump doesn't believe that. Um, obviously, Donald Trump also doesn't believe what he does on immigration and a variety of other issues. So he's been trying to say, I believe in these things. I want to talk about these things. But every time I talk about them, I don't want you to think that it's because I'm angling to try to replace somebody at the convention. The scenario you, you paint, John, it does seem like, yes, he, Ryan would presumably end up as the as the, the compromise candidate. And the um, uh, who, was, who was the last president who there was um, who was the pre- last president who wasn't actually a candidate? Garfield? Maybe it was Garfield. Yeah. It was Garfield. It yeah. was Garfield, Garfield on the 27th Garfield. ballot. Yeah. He would be willing to Garfield it. But it does seem like so that we now have our basically two choices are Trump and Cruz because none of the other alternative candidates seem in any way realistic. Like the idea that Condi Rice or or Romney or Rubio or Chris Christie are alternatives to Ted Cruz and Donald Trump for this set of Republican voters. That seems preposterous. I guess the only other person is John Kasich, which just seems totally implausible given how poorly he's doing right now and what a small amount of voters and delegates he would have. So, yeah, no, I think it's Trump Cruz with some like asterisks about Paul Ryan, as John just laid out. Given that, why are so few Republicans actually energetically behind Cruz? Well, certainly his colleagues. They don't like him because they think that he climbed to the prominence he has on their backs and not just by saying true things about the um, messed up situation in Washington, but by distorting uh, tactical disagreements into deep core philosophical ones and that it's totally based on opportunism and that it's one. It's fine. They're surrounded by opportunists and the ambitious, but to always be using your colleagues to advance yourself is loathsome. And so, they find that loathsome, and they're not going to help him advance himself in the other ways he's advanced himself. It has been at their expense. So I think there's that. I also think they don't think in a general election uh, that he would be wonderful. Do you think it's clear that Cruz, if we ran each of them, do you think it's obvious that Cruz would actually win more votes in November? Uh, no, it's not. It's not obvious. But uh, Donald Trump has historic negatives among women. Those under 40, the Washington Post had a new poll. 84% of those under 40 have an unfavorable view of, of Trump. 85% of women do. The Hispanic number is somewhere in that. Those aren't Ted Cruz's numbers. I mean, those are, <laughs> those are stratospheric. I mean, those are amazingly bad numbers. Now, I think the other thing you would add to fears about Trump over Cruz is Cruz is, Trump is so unpredictable. Any old thing could happen that could be, I mean, the upside of that is he's not an ideologue. He could, he could be a guy you could make deals with if he's the actual president. And you could really imagine him doing that. He wants to get to a result. And whatever the result is, he'll just say the result is great. And that could be actually quite productive. Uh, Cruz is an ideologue, and that could lead to catastrophe. But as an election matter, Donald Trump is going to say something every day that makes life very exciting for Republicans who are running and that you have to respond to as a Republican. And that's the kind of unpredictability that they, uh, that they don't want. Going back to Ryan for a second, 
John, you you rightly lay out this idea that Ryan wants to set the table for 2017. He wants to lay out a, a kind of a, a coherent, positive policy vision about what he wants to do, um, which he can either implement with a Republican president or at least you know use as a foil to a Democratic president. Do you think, given the way that campaigns have nationalized, given the way this presidential campaign has eaten eaten the country already, that there's room for that voice in in the fall, like that anyone's going to be listening to what Paul Ryan, who is not Paul Ryan, a non-presidential candidate, is going to be saying about tax reform or Obamacare. I think it's very, I think what he's trying to do is admirable, but it's it runs into the tension that he has had to try to solve this week, which is that every time he puts out a video about what he believes, it's immediately seen in the presidential context. So he pulls himself out of the game to say, I'm not running. Okay, that's fine. So then there's a nominee and he puts out a video and says a thing. And then it's immediately viewed in the presidential context. Hmm, does that does that jibe with what the, the nominee of your party is saying? You know, Mr. Trump, do you agree with what with what Paul Ryan says about immigration? No. Do you agree with what he says about trade? No. Do you agree with what he says about the budget? No. Do you agree with what he says about entitlements? No. Okay, well, this is a problem. And tax reform, it's a... And also, by the way, Ryan, in addition to trying to be the ideas person, which isn't to say the quality of ideas, but just speaking out loud about ideas and trying to have a conversation in public about it, is that he's also trying to be the conscience of the party. He's called out Trump three different times. Mitch McConnell has not really. And and he's trying to say, this is what we believe in. So don't pay attention to what Trump is saying. Is he going to have to keep doing that in the general election? And if so, then that becomes what's covered and not whatever his views are about tax inversions. And now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? It is incredibly hard to hire these days. It's a tight job market for competitive positions. You are clamoring and fighting and grabbing. Uh, I've just been going through this experience at my company where I've been trying to fill a position, and it's been unbelievably difficult to find the right candidates. And posting in one place isn't enough to find the best employees for your team. That's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to over 100 job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 800,000 businesses. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. Try it free at ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory this week tried to step back from a stupid and hateful law he signed into law a few weeks ago, HB2, also known as the bathroom law. Following the city of Charlotte's decision to extend, I'm not sure what the right term is, but bathroom rights, I don't even they know. They were like just the... trying to have an anti-discrimination ordinance that covered LGBT people. And yes, yes, transgender people were going to get to choose which yes. bathroom to go into. To, to choose which bathroom you use. The state passed a law that barred people from using any bathroom other than that of their birth sex, I the guess. The one on your... Um, their birth certificate. Yeah, you can change your birth certificate in North Carolina, but it was the one on your birth certificate. 
Um, they'd also forbade towns and cities in North Carolina from passing laws against LGBT discrimination. It also forbade towns and cities from raising the minimum wage because those things all fit together, of course. The backlash to HB2 has been fierce. There's been huge condemnation, cancellation of concerts and performances. Uh, Bruce Springsteen canceled a concert. There are businesses that are reconsidering whether to locate to the state. And uh, who canceled NBA. expansion plans. PayPal changed its mind. Deutsche Bank made an announcement. Real economic consequences. Yes. So, Emily, is this law, first of all, is HB2 legal? No, I think it's not. I think it's unconstitutional. I mean, nobody has, no court has found that yet. But if you go back 20 years to Romer versus Evans, which is one of the first really important pro-gay rights Supreme Court decisions, what happened in that, the facts behind that case are that some towns in, I guess cities, I should say, in Colorado passed anti-discrimination ordinances protecting people on the basis of sexual orientation from discrimination. And the voters then passed a ballot initiative changing the Colorado Constitution to erase those city protections. So it's really similar scenario with the you know caveat that we're talking about voters changing the Constitution versus the legislature writing a law. What the Supreme Court said, and this is like a famous opinion by Justice Kennedy, was that it's not okay to take away rights from people because you don't like them. The word that Kennedy used was animus, this idea of a kind of animating set of prejudices that are really just about signaling your kind of moral discomfort or, um, or worse, your feelings of, of disgust with some relatively powerless group. And that just seems to me like such an exact or super close parallel to what's going on right now in North Carolina. And the fear-mongering about trans people using the bathroom is like some somehow last well, to me, it's not acceptable, but some form of prejudice, which is, this is not <laughs> rooted in reality, that is somehow okay to utter. And this idea that, like, people, you know, are being attacked in the bathroom. And we saw this with the Houston ordinance, um, which had, you know, the same thing. These sort of scary ads of, like, little girls in the bathroom, men coming into the bathroom. This is just not the reality of trans people using the bathroom. And if men are going to come into the bathroom, then men are going to come into the bathroom. Like, that has nothing to do with trans people. It's just a, a different scenario. Um, right. There's a great tweet I saw. The same people who believe that gun laws don't prevent criminals from getting guns believe that anti-bathroom laws will prevent predators from using bathrooms. Mm -hmm. How does a judge make a determination about animus? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, the court basically looked at some of the history of this ballot initiative and the language that was used to pass it and said, like, this is about prejudice. There's re it's really hard to know what else could have animated this. And I think it's it matters. And this came up actually also with um, the court decisions about Proposition 8, California's ballot initiative that took away the right to gay marriage after the Supreme Court in California, the California Supreme Court, granted it. There is something about taking away rights from people who to whom they have been given that is like weirder and more suspect than just never giving them all at all because you have to articulate a reason why, why you're snatching something away and I think that your prejudice kind of shows in that moment and and that's what Kennedy was talking about and that's what's relevant here is it but Emily is this this uh, problem of animus does this apply I can see it how it would apply to the part of the law that bars states and towns from passing anti-LGBT discrimination laws. Does that also apply for the bathroom 
uh, part of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean because... the bathroom part of it. It's like isn't but isn't there like a you know the under rational basis uh, rather than strict scrutiny? I mean the trans your 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 gender identity is not a protected category, right? It doesn't. It's not subject to strict, strict scrutiny, right? Under the right. law, correct? You might end up so, in some weird intermediate scrutiny place, which is basically what Romer versus Evans created. And you're right. Otherwise, you could say, well, any rational basis for this law, like I mean, I honestly don't know what the rational basis is, but it's certainly easier to come up with some fig leaf rational basis than it is once you increase the level of scrutiny. I just don't think that the Supreme Court really means anymore that anti-gay rights laws are only subject to rational basis review. It's not really what they've been doing ever since Romer. They've really been applying a kind of, you know, they've been looking more closely. Why are people so hysterical about bathrooms? I just don't understand why people so are so hysterical So I wrote about, about this a few months ago, and I actually, like, I mean, I really don't. I find these laws hateful and um, really loathsome. But the bathroom. The bathroom is a place where you take off your clothes and you're vulnerable. And we have a tradition, it really only goes to the 19th century, of having sex-segregated bathrooms. And women in particular, not me so much, um, but women see them as a place to congregate. I mean, you know, if you're out with a group of people, it's still customary for, you know, the women to get up at some point, or sometimes at least, and say, like, we're going off to the ladies' room to have a little chat while the men sit at the table. It's like a moment in which people take a break from the opposite sex. And so, while, again, I don't agree with it, some of the... um, reaction to the idea of sharing the bathroom is some notion that women are losing that private space. Now, that means that we're treating trans women as not being women. And in fact, they are women. The whole idea is that they want to come into the bathroom because they are women. Right. The weird part is to, you can imagine somebody forced under this law to go into a women's bathroom, but they present publicly as a man. Like how disturbing, that'd be much more disturbing than someone who I, I don't know. Right. It well, it's all about so what crazy. do you, what, how do you define sex? Are we concerned about the, our anatomical bits, or are we talking about like our gender presentation and our our gender realities for ourselves? I mean, the anatomical bits part starts to come in when you talk about teenagers changing in front of each other. Um, this, you know, also has been an issue. Now, this is the Department of Education has made it really clear that if a trans girl wants to go into the girls' changing room and use the showers, she is allowed to do that and sure a school can set up like a you know a curtain that people can change behind if they choose but it can't be like just for her and she can't be ordered to use it so you know people are gonna have to just like chill out a little bit about all of this and um and realize that like gender is fluid and mutable and it's not just about whether you have a penis or a vagina like that stuff is going to take a little while i mean In all fairness to, you know, the voters in Houston, really I'm not going to excuse the legislators in North Carolina, I do think that the trans conversation for people who have not been part of it seems like it's happening quickly. And for some people it's going to just take a little time to get used to. Yeah, and for those people who don't believe that gender is as mutable as others do, the you're just going to have to get over it idea is not that couldn't probably be you couldn't probably cook up a more <laughs> offensive thing because it, it as you articulated uh goes right into this private space. Right. It, it gets people where they're you know, already don't have rock solid certainty about things in that space. Right. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean the, the sin here is the way that the North Carolina state legislature ginned up 
this hysteria yes. about something which just doesn't deserve hysteria. It just deserves like people just sort of like letting it, not noticing it, letting it go. And like one day, 10 years from now, we realize, oh, yeah, bathrooms, they're different from when I was a kid. Right. And like, also the who act cares? of like making fe someone feel uncomfortable because they're in the wrong bathroom. Like who really needs that? There's a great scene in Transparent from the first season in which this happens. Right. And it just like I just it's yeah. This is just one point which never can be made often enough. Jane Mayer wrote this incredible piece I've talked about on the show many times about the takeover of the North Carolina state right. government by uh, a series of kind of – that a conservative rich people met, led this effort to say we want to get conservatives into the state government, state legislature, and this guy Art Pope in particular. And it, they've had enormous success. And the North Carolina, which is a basically a 50-50 – Democratic-Republican state has become incredibly conservative at a state legislative le level, and I think at a state judicial level probably as well. And this is, um, this is you know, blazing evidence of right. it. Right. One, one other, uh, one, one final question on this. So uh, Bruce Springsteen canceled a can concert in North Carolina. There were other people who played concerts in North Carolina. Uh, like, let's say, let's say our live Gab Fest was going to be in North Carolina, not in Atlanta. Like, what what responsibility do you as a as an artist as a performer as someone bringing economic activity have is there a right answer or not i would have wanted to cancel if we had planned to perform to to go to north carolina i mean and i say that i don't think there's a right answer because the other answer is like you go and you talk about the issue and you give comfort to the people who are trying to fight back and there you don't make them suffer too but i would have felt wrong going and doing a live show there right now john you have views on this whether we should have done uh, I'm just saying you don't, have to, you don't have to make it, in your, you don't have to make it yeah, personal. I think it's if you uh, – I mean I think it's great for if companies or performers feel like – feel strongly enough that they should they should do it. I mean it, you know it's a bummer for their fans but I think that's fine. Do you but is there a right answer? I, I think it's one of these things where where both answers are fine. It's yeah. just, I don't – You think if you perform and you right, use so it, as it should, to draw should, attention should, to it through your performance? Right. right? Right. So should would Springsteen have been condemned in any way or anybody like that be condemned? See, Springsteen's different than, say, PayPal. So, for example, Springsteen can start his basically turn it into a rally and start the concert with either a song or a a long exploration of how unfair he thinks the move, the law was. Whereas PayPal doesn't have PayPal can sort of only exercise it in one way, which is by not coming. I mean, I guess that's not true. I guess they could. But yeah, it's to send so much more of a powerful message, whereas I think in the performer's case, you could send the message both right, ways. Right, We are going to Georgia, however, just to let you know. <laughs> There's no, no danger of us canceling a show in Georgia. In part because Nathan Deal right. uh, didn't, didn't, you know, yeah. he, he uh, chose to take the opposite route. And Nikki Haley also said there was no law, I think, in South Carolina, but she said there was no law like this and there shouldn't be. There's no reason to have one. And basically John Kasich said the same thing. Now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is HelloFresh. You know when you go to the grocery store and you're hungry and you end up getting way more food than you need? You end up with a frozen pizza and chips and other stuff that is quick and really not the best for you. The good thing is you no longer have to worry about junk food impulse buys thanks to HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step -step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed, so there's no food waste. Plus, you're getting food that's healthy. HelloFresh employs a full-time registered dietitian who reviews each recipe 
to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. To top it all off, every meal kit is delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. We had HelloFresh at my house a couple of weeks ago. It was fantastic. The red pepper that came with the HelloFresh was like the paradigmatic. It was if 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 uh, if Rembrandt had wanted to paint a red pepper, he would have chosen this red pepper. It was. I looked at it and with lust in my eyes, it was such a great looking red pepper. And then it was a delicious red pepper. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter code SPG when you subscribe. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter uh, very quickly for Emily Bazelon because she has to chatter and run, classic chatter and run. Mm-hmm. What do you want to chatter about, Em? So there was a really interesting conversation this week about the 1994 Clinton crime bill, which came out of Bill Clinton's, I would argue, mishandling of um, heckling and questions he got at a rally in Philadelphia. I, I wouldn't condemn his entire, like if you watch the longer tape, but there was a moment where he just totally brought back this like discredited myth of like the super predator 13-year-old gangbanger as the reason for the crime bill, and that just really bugged me. So what I was going to recommend is an excellent exchange on Twitter between John Pfaff and David Menchel about the or the crime bill, the impact it actually had, what is in it. It's still the best thing I read all week. I don't think anyone storified it, although somebody should, but John Pfaff is a Fordham law professor. David Menchel is a public defender in Oregon who thinks a lot about these issues um, and will post some kind of link. I retweeted a lot of what they were saying. It was all happening in a flurry, whatever night of the week that was. Was. But we'll find some way that you can go read it. It's really good. Spell um, Faff. T F A F F. Thank you. Um, all right. Bye, guys. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Uh, so I have a two part chatter. The whistle stop I did this week on. Um, good whistle stop. Listeners, check it out. I was fishing for that. In the whistle stop I did this week, which is about George Wallace and his campaign uh, in 1968, I just can't do all the reading before I start writing. And one of the things I read after, unfortunately, I taped it, is that during the campaign, Wallace was shaking hands at a rally, and he was filmed by ABC News shaking hands with Robert Shelton, who was the imperial wizard of the United Clans of America. And Wallace had his security... Uh, had his bodyguard go over to ABC and take the film from them. And they got into this huge fight, and and it never, I mean, they kept the film. And ABC was like, no, you can't do that. And also said, uh, yes, I can. So, I mean, imagine that. Like, like literally took the film. Where, the what camera. state were they in? Were they in uh, Alabama? They were in, t- uh, I think they were in Tuscaloosa, which is where Shelton, yeah, that's right. They were in so, Tuscaloosa. So it was nominally Alabama. under protection of Governor Lurleen Wallace at that point. Like, like the state, it was, you, you could have said it was state action. I think she'd passed away by then. She died? Yeah. She yeah. wasn't governor in 68 when he was running? No, she he, died and then he went back on the campaign trail. I didn't realize He that. went into this funk for like three weeks and then he went back out. That's a whole other whistle stop, dude. Oh, yeah. No, his, um, I mean, his family relations were quite complicated. He was a well-known philanderer. And then when he went back out on the campaign trail, one of the women that he was having affairs with used to say that he was so, like, stressed that her her job, as she articulated, was basically to just go and make love to him, uh, but that he was so stressed that he basically, like, left his suit on and his shoes. Like, he was, it was, a, it was a, a very important piece of detail in her description of his, uh, his life. Then, speaking of that, in, in a, um, a kind of awkward segue, is that I was having a conversation with some parents on the sideline of my daughter's soccer game, and somebody said... 
so-and-so was shagging with uh, this school principal and an Irish woman who was with us like turned around and obviously it was the age-old conflict between shag the southern term which means to dance and the uh, what this Irish woman thought which is meant to um, have sex and this reminded me however that the first according to the Oxford English Dictionary the first usage of that term was in 1770 by a well-known southerner Thomas Jefferson in his memorandum books he wrote he had shagged his mother and begotten himself on her body in 1770. Whoa. Is he talking about himself? I don't know. I don't. I, I just have he that He didn't excerpt. shag his no, mother. No, I don't, I don't think that was among his challenges in life. Anyway, I can't believe wait, that wait, that's, where, wait, that's wait, the but, first citation for hold this, on, but the sorry, use of the word. That use is the sex use or that's the dance? That's the, se- that's the sex that's use. That's the sex use according to the OED. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's according to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the definitive record of the English language, so I don't know. But anyway, of all the things he did, being the first citation for that use of the word... Isn't that on his tombstone? It's the, it's the <laughs> exactly. author of the Declaration of Independence. Exactly. Or article, what's the articles of religious freedom? Freedom in Virginia, founder, founder, founder of the founder University of Virginia. Virginia. And, yeah, I think Corner that's true. Of the phrase, to I shag. <laughs> I think that's my... Sexually. Uh, okay. Um, my chatter, I also have two chatters. One usual uh, reminder, Obscura Day is on uh, this Saturday, April 16th. Go to atlasobscura.com slash Obscura Day. They're in an adventure near you. You should go join it. Come on out and um, have an adventure on Obscura Day and see the world in a new way. But my uh, other chatter is about <laughs> this very funny story that circulated about Ted Cruz. So Ted Cruz has a long career as, a, as an appellate lawyer and defended some wacky things. And people had great sport this week with a case that he took on in 2007 when he was Solicitor General of Texas. And he urged the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit to uphold Texas's ban on the sale and distribution of sex toys. And he did it for the following reason, one reason. There is no substantive due process right to stimulate one's genitals for non-medical purposes unrelated to procreation or outside of an interpersonal relationship, they argued. Basically, they were arguing that masturbation, there was no right to masturbation, which is a very funny case to make. There are good legal reasons why they were making this argument, and there's a very good article in Reason that goes out, uh, goes off, uh, g- explains what the legal reasons are, which are bad legal reasons, but they're coherent legal reasons, uh, and why they fit with Cruz's jurisprudence generally. The other kind of not co- to mention what Federalist 31 says about it. Yeah, and, to, and Jefferson apparently also, <laughs> like that was another part. He was when with the shagging. If it had just been masturbation, he would have been fine with it. But it was the shagging that he objected to. Then there was this. Also prompted a tweet from uh, Ted Cruz's freshman college roommate, who loathes him, a guy named Craig Mazin, who's a screenwriter who's just been attacking Ted Cruz for months and months and months. But Craig Mazin tweeted, "Ted Cruz thinks people don't have a right to quote stimulate their genitals. I was his college roommate. This would be a new belief of his." Which is just. Like, that's a low blow. I feel ashamed for having read it on the show, but, you know, it's pretty funny. Our intern is L. Bisgard Church for a little bit longer. Remember, if you want to be our intern, uh, send us a resume and uh, cover letter to gabfestatslate.com, which is our email address. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. And we're, of course, part of the Panoply Network. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. 
Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed, always active, always pleasant, is at SlateGabFest. Subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes uh, and comment and rate while you are there. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Our Atlanta show is the week after that. And then remember, we have a DC show on July 13th. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.